After reciting the Shahud, Ta'uz, and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalif al-Masih V, Ayyadahullah Ta'ala bin Aziz, stated, I have been narrating accounts from the life of Hazrat Sa'ad bin Ubadah for the last few sermons, and today I will narrate the final accounts relating to him. His name is especially mentioned as one of those whom the Ansar wanted to elect as their Khalifa after the demise of the Holy Prophet wasallam. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has also written in Sirat Khatman Nabiyin that the Ansar insisted upon electing him as the Khalifa as he was also the leader of his tribe. When Hazrat Abu Bakr was elected as the Khalifa, he remained in doubt regarding the matter or was hesitant even before this due to the insistence of the Ansar for him to be made the Khalifa. As a Muslim who has shed ample light on this issue and has also highlighted the importance and rank of the institution of Khilafat with reference to this incident. Hence, I consider vital to mention this incident and it is a need of the present era as well. However, before I present the writings of Hazrat Muslim I will present one hadith and a historical reference in this regard. It is narrated by Humaid bin Abdurrahman. When the Messenger of Allah وسلم, passed away, Hazrat Abu Bakr was on the outskirts of Medina. He came and uncovered his blessed face and kissed it and said, May my father and mother be sacrificed for you. How pure was your countenance when you were alive and even now when you have passed away. He then said, 
I swear by the Lord of the Kaaba that Muhammad has passed away. Then Hazrat Abu Bakr and Hazrat Umar moved swiftly to Saqifah Banu Sa'ida. When both of them had arrived, Hazrat Abu Bakr spoke first and began mentioning all the excellences of the Ansar that were mentioned in the Holy Quran, not omitting any detail therefrom or those that were mentioned by the Holy Prophet He then further said, You know full well that the Messenger of Allah once said, If all the people were to walk in one direction and the Ansar were to walk in another, I would walk in the direction of the Ansar. Then addressing Hazrat Saad, Hazrat Abu Bakr said, O Saad, do you remember in a gathering in which you were also seated, the Messenger of Allah said, The Quraysh have a rightful claim to Khilafat. Those that are righteous will follow the righteous individuals from the Quraysh, and the evil ones from among the people will follow the evil ones of the Quraysh. Saad said to him, You have spoken the truth. We are viziers and you are the leaders. This hadith is from Musnad Ahmed bin Hanbal. Regarding this incident, in At-Tabqatul Kubra it is stated, Upon the demise of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, Hazrat Abu Bakr sent a message to Hazrat Saad bin Ubada that he ought to come and perform the bayt, as everyone, including his tribe, had performed the bayt. He replied, by Allah, I will not perform the bayt until I have not shot all the arrows in my quiver. According to this reference, he refused to perform the bayt. And until I have not fought against you along with those people from my tribe who are with me. When this news reached Hazrat Abu Bakr, Bashir bin Saad said, O Khalifa of the Prophet, he has rejected and is persistent upon it. That is, he is persistent in his refusal. He will not pledge allegiance to you even if he were to be killed. Furthermore, he can never be killed unless and until his children and his tribe are killed along with him. Similarly, they cannot be killed unless the entire tribe of Khazraj is killed. And the tribe of Khazraj can certainly not be killed unless the tribe of Os is killed. Therefore, you should not advance towards them, now that matter has become evident to the people. They will not be able to harm you. That is, the majority of his tribe had pledged allegiance. Therefore, it does not matter if he, i.e. Hazrat Saad, has refused to do so. For he is a person who has been abandoned. Hazrat Abu Bakr accepted the advice of Hazrat Bashir and left Hazrat Saad alone. After this, when Hazrat Umar was appointed as a Khalifa, he came across Saad and said, What do you say, O Saad? He replied, What do you say, O Umar? This is a conversation between the two. Hazrat Umar asked, 
Are you the same as you were before? Saad replied, I am the same as before. I.e., despite the fact that Hazrat Umar had been elected to the station of Khilafat and many people had pledged their allegiance, however, Hazrat Saad had not done so. Following this, Hazrat Saad said, By God, your companion, i.e., Hazrat Abu Bakr, was dearer to me than you. Hazrat Saad said to Hazrat Umar that Hazrat Abu Bakr was dearer to him in comparison to Hazrat Umar. Following this, Hazrat Saad said, By God, I have woken up in a state that I do not appreciate you as my neighbor. Hazrat Umar said, Whoever dislikes the company of his neighbor should move away from him. Hazrat Saad replied, I will not forget these words, i.e., you will act accordingly. I am going to move to a neighborhood that is better than yours. I, this is what he thought. A short while later, towards the early part of Hazrat Umar's caliphate, Hazrat Saad migrated to Syria. This is a reference from At-Tabqatul Kubra. In relation to Hazrat Saad, there is another narration in which it is stated that he pledged allegiance to Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu. Hence, in Tariqh At-Tabari, it is stated, that is, one by one, the entire tribe pledged allegiance to Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu, and Hazrat Saad also pledged allegiance to him. This is a reference from Tariq At-Tabari. Nevertheless, as I mentioned earlier, Hazrat Muslim Maud has presented various aspects why it is important to pledge allegiance to Khilafat, what is the status of Khilafat, and what is the significance of the, this action of Hazrat Saad's. Hazrat Muslim Maud states in one of his Friday sermons, Qatl also refers to severing one's ties. When the companions began to differ in relation to Khilafat following the demise of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, the Ansar were of the opinion that it was their due right for Khilafat to remain within them as they were the natives of that area. At the very least, if there was to be a Khalifa from among the Muhajireen, there should also be one from among the Ansar, that is, there should be two Khalifas. Banu Hashim were of the opinion that the Khilafat was their due right as the Holy Prophet ﷺ belonged to their family. Although the Muhajireen were of the opinion that the Khalifa ought to be from among the Quraysh, as the people of Arabia would never obey anyone who did not belong to the Quraysh, they did not suggest anyone in particular. Rather, they wished to leave the matter of appointment to an election, i.e., whoever the Muslims chose would be considered the appointed Khalifa of God Almighty. When they expressed this opinion, the Ansar and Banu Hashim agreed to this. However, one companion could not comprehend this matter. This was that very companion whom the Ansar wanted to elect as the Khalifa. Perhaps he considered this to be an insult to him, or he may not have been able to truly comprehend this matter. Whatever the reason was, he said that he was not prepared to pledge allegiance to Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu. In certain books of history, a saying of Hazrat Umar is recorded in which he said, Uqtulu Sa'ada, 
i.e. to kill Sa'd. However, Hazrat Umar did not kill him, nor did anyone else. Some expert linguists have said that in his statement Hazrat Umar meant to sever ties with Sa'd. In other historical sources, it is also stated that Hazrat Sa'd would regularly go to the mosque, but would offer his prayers separately and then leave, and no other companion would speak to him. Thus, one interpretation of the phrase, kill Sa'd, is to sever ties with him and for everyone to disassociate with him. Further writing about Hazrat Sa'd bin Ubadah, Hazrat Muslimawd states in reference to an earlier sermon of his, In a previous sermon, I mentioned regarding an Ansari companion and that after the demise of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, some of the Ansar companions believed that the Khalifa ought to be chosen from among the Ansar. However, the Muhajireen, especially Hazrat Abu Bakr explained to them that this choice would not be beneficial for the Muslim Ummah. Because the Muslims would never accept this i.e. for a Khalifa to be chosen from among the Ansar. Subsequently, the Muhajireen and the Ansar gathered together and mutually agreed that everyone ought to perform the bet at the hands of someone from the Muhajireen. Eventually, they unanimously agreed that this person ought to be Hazrat Abu Bakr It was not possible for everyone to agree upon who it should be from among the Ansar, and Hazrat Abu Bakr, as well as other companions, explained that this decision would not be beneficial. Nonetheless, it was decided that the Khalifa ought to be chosen from among the Muhajireen, and thus it was unanimously agreed that this should be Hazrat Abu Bakr Hazrat Muslimawd then writes, In the aforementioned sermon, I said that when Hazrat Saad showed reluctance to perform the bet, Hazrat Umar said, Uqtulu Saad, meaning to kill Saad. However, neither did Hazrat Umar kill Hazrat Saad, nor did any other companion. In fact, he remained alive until the caliphate of Hazrat Umar. As mentioned in one of the previous extracts, Hazrat Saad remained alive until the caliphate of Hazrat Umar and passed away in Syria. Hazrat Saad migrated to Syria and passed away there. Scholars of the past eras have concluded from this that the meaning of Hazrat Umar's statement was not to physically kill Hazrat Saad, rather it only meant to sever ties with him. Furthermore, in the Arabic language, qatl, i.e. to kill, has many other connotations. Despite the fact that in the Urdu language, qatl only means to kill someone, 
However, when qatl is used in the Arabic language, it has many other meanings, among which one of those meanings is to sever ties with someone. From the statement of Hazrat Umar anhu, the grammarians have inferred that Hazrat Umar did not mean to kill, rather to sever ties, keep a distance, and not to speak with him. Otherwise, if from this he meant to kill him, then why did Hazrat Umar anhu, who possessed great zeal, not kill Saad himself? Or why did anyone from the companions not kill him? Hazrat Umar did not kill him, and even though Hazrat Saad remained alive until his Khilafat, he was not killed. According to some narrations, Hazrat Saad remained alive even after the Caliphate of Hazrat Umar, and no companion lifted a finger against him. Nonetheless, it is evident from this that the meaning of kill was only to sever ties and not to physically carrying it out. Even though this companion remained in seclusion away from the other companions, Hazrat Saad moved away from everyone, nobody attacked him. As a Muslim further says, I presented the example that if one sees a dream in which a person is killed, the interpretation of that dream could be of severing ties or boycotting that individual. Hazrat Muslim is referring back to one of his previous sermons. Nonetheless, Hazrat Muslim further states, after the sermon, one of our members mentioned to me that although Saad did not perform the bet, yet he was included in all matters of consultation. I.e., despite not performing the bet, Hazrat Abu Bakr sought his advice on different matters. Hazrat Muslim then says, There could only be two reasons why this individual said this regarding Hazrat Saad. Either he wished to refute my interpretation, i.e. he rejects the lexical meaning of qatl as mentioned by Hazrat Muslim believing that this was not plausible or he thinks that refusing to pledge allegiance to Khilafat is not a significant crime. The re- second reason for the aforementioned statement by this individual could be that according to him refusing to pledge allegiance to Khilafat is not a significant matter because Saad did not perform the bad he was still consulted on different matters. As a Muslim Muslimaud states, A poet once wrote, Ta mard sukhan nagufta bashid, Ebo hunarish nahufta bashid. Meaning, a person's flaws and faults are concealed only up until they remain silent. At times when a person speaks, they unveil their shortcomings. As long as they remain silent, their faults remain concealed but on occasions they speak ignorantly, thereby uncovering their own shortcomings. As a Muslim states, the statement of this person, i.e. the one who inferred that Hazrat Saad was included in matters of consultation and commented on the sermon of Hazrat Muslim indicates that either he wishes to diminish the significance of pledging allegiance to Khilafat or he wishes to exhibit his knowledge. However, both of these matters are incorrect. To exhibit one's knowledge will not prove beneficial, because this statement is so far from the truth that upon hearing this, a wise person would be left with no choice but to smile. With regards to the lives of the companions, there are three well-known books of Islamic history. Any event pertaining to the history of the companions can be found in these books, and they are Tahzeeb al-Tahzeeb, 
Al-Asaba and Usdul Ghaba. All three of them mention that Saad lived the remainder of his life away from the companions and after migrating to Syria, he passed away there. Furthermore, some lexicons have referred to this incident while discussing the meaning of the word Qatl. As a Muslim then states, the fact of the matter is that there were 60 or 70 companions with the name Saad. Among them, one of them was Saad bin Abi Waqas, who was one of the Ashura Mubasha, and appointed as commander and chief by Hazrat Umar and was included in all matters of consultation. It seems as if the person who raised this allegation upon the sermon of Hazrat Muslim did so out of his ignorance, and hearing the name Saad, he failed to distinguish as to which Saad was being referred to. Instead, he immediately passed remarks about my sermon. I was not making reference to Saad bin Abi Waqas, who was a Mahajir. Rather, the companion I was referring to was from among the Ansar. Aside from these two, there were many other companions with the name Saad. There were approximately 60 or 70 such companions. The Saad I was referring to was Saad bin Ubadah. In actuality, the Arabs used a limited number of names. Often in the same village, there will be many people with the same name. If someone wished to find a person, they would call them by their father's name. For example, they would not use the name Saad or Said, rather they would say Saad bin Ubada or Saad bin Abi Waqas. Similarly, if they were unable to locate the person based on their father's name, they would refer to the person by their rank or status. And where this was not possible still, they would then use the person's tribe's name. Therefore, there is an extensive debate about the historical Saad, as the name is very similar to others with the name Saad. Historians have written, they are referring to this very Saad, in other words, the Khazraji Saad. It is evident from this individual, i.e. the one who criticized or passed these remarks, has misunderstood the different individuals with the same name, and has thoughtlessly raised this allegation. Such comments do not serve to increase understanding, rather it serves as a means of unveiling one's ignorance. As a Muslim further writes, The status of Khilafat is such that one cannot gain any honour by detaching from it. As a Muslim then says, referring to the mosque from where he was delivering the sermon, which was perhaps Masjid Aqsa, I heard Hazrat Khalifam see the first saying, Do you know who the first enemy of Khilafat was? Answering this question himself, Hazrat Khalifam the first says, Read the Quran and you will come to know that the first enemy was Iblis. Allah the Almighty made Adam the Khalifa, i.e. successor, and his enemy was Iblis. Hazrat Khalifam the first then said, I am also a Khalifa and whoever is my enemy is Iblis. As a Muslim then says, There is no doubt that the Khalifa is not a Mamur, although it is not necessary that he is not a Mamur. Hazrat Adam was a Mamur and a Khalifa. Hazrat Daud was a Mamur and a Khalifa. The Promised Messiah was a Mamur and a Khalifa. Every Prophet is a Mamur as well as being a Khalifa of God.
Just as every individual is a Khalifa from one aspect, similarly, Prophets are also Khalifas. But there is also a type of Khalifa who are never Mahmud. There is no difference, however, in showing obedience to this type of Khalifa and Prophets. It is necessary to display obedience in the same way to a Khalifa as it is shown to a Prophet. Indeed, there is a clear distinction in the obedience shown to both. And that is, one must show obedience to a Prophet because he is the focal point of divine revelation and purity. A Prophet is the center of divine revelation and purity. However, obedience to a Khalifa is not for the reason that he is the focal point of divine revelation and purity. Obedience is necessary to a Khalifa because he is the one who has been appointed to disseminate and further the revelation and system brought by the Prophet. i.e. a Khalifa is the one who propagates the revelation of a Prophet and to further the system established by the Prophet. This is why the wise have said that Prophets receive Ismat-i-Kubra whilst the Khalifas receive Ismat-i-Sughra. As a Muslim then says, from this very pulpit in this very mosque on a Friday, where he was delivering the sermon at the time in Qadian, I heard directly from Hazrat Khalif the first who said, You cannot disobey me based on any personal fault you find in me. If he was to commit an error in a personal matter, that does not mean you could disobey the Khalifa. This can never be the case. You can never turn away from the obedience Allah the Almighty has ordained essential for you to display. Indeed, the task for which I have been appointed is something else, and that is to establish unity. And thus, obedience to me is necessary. It is the divine way that the prophets do have natural human weaknesses, and this was done to differentiate between God's unity and prophethood, and God does not interfere with that. This was necessary for the training of the people. For example, there is the sajda sahab If one inadvertently makes a mistake, and therefore through this they can practically demonstrate how to perform the sajda sahab Thus, this is a mistake which even Prophets can make. The Holy Prophet also made an inadvertent error. And then he performed the sajda sahab He further states, All the actions of Prophets are safeguarded by Allah the Almighty. For the Khalifas, Allah the Almighty safeguards all their actions which they perform to progress the system established by the Prophet. A Khalifa will never make such a mistake that will harm the Jamaat or which will convert victory into defeat for Islam. Or if they ever do commit such a mistake, they will immediately rectify it. Allah the Almighty demonstrates His support and protection to all those actions of the Khalifa which are done to further Islam and strengthen the system established to achieve this progress. Even if the Khalifa ever commits an error, 
Allah the Almighty has made it his own responsibility to rectify it. In short, the Khalifa is not responsible for his actions in relation to the Nizam, rather God himself is responsible. This is why it is said that Allah the Almighty appoints the Khalifa himself. However, this does not mean that the Khalifa cannot make a mistake. What this signifies is that Allah the Almighty rectifies any mistake through the person of the Khalifa. Or alternatively, Allah the Almighty ensures that no negative effect results from any error made by the Khalifa. If through God's wisdom ever a situation arises where apparently the Khalifa commits an error which may be harmful to the Jamaat and there is a threat that it would lead to decline instead of progress, Allah the Almighty manifests hidden means and He converts any potential harmful effects into the means of progress and success. This unseen wisdom manifests to cover the oversight in the heart of the Khalifa. Prophets, however, possess both forms of protection. In other words, ismat kubra and ismat sugra Prophets are the center of the system of spreading the message of God, as well as the perfect reflection of divine revelation, as well as the perfect embodiment of righteousness. This does not infer at all that it is necessary for every Khalifa to not be the perfect embodiment of righteousness. And although it is possible that in terms of righteous deeds, their status is below that of other saints of God. But even then it is only in a particular aspect of a righteous deed. Thus, where it is possible that there are such Khalifas who are the perfect embodiment of righteousness as well as the center of spreading the message, there may be Khalifas who are lesser in status than others in righteousness, but only in relation to a particular aspect of a righteous deed, but higher in rank in administrative capability in running the system of spreading the message. In any case, it is necessary in all circumstances to obey them because the system is linked to the siyasat of the Jamaat. Some people will immediately be startled when hearing the words politics of the Jamaat and will be curious as to what this infers. In normal and general terminology, we refer to politics in a negative connotation. This is partly caused by politicians who have caused the word politics to hold a terrible reputation. It has come to signify causing havoc, damage, harm or to not work in an honest manner. In truth, the lexicons describe the word politics to mean properly operating a system. Another meaning is to employ reason when carrying out something. To ensure a system is in place to prevent evil is another connotation. To use reason and wisdom to carry out something and to have the ability to solve international matters in the correct manner are the meanings of politics. In short, this word holds all manners of positive meanings. However, as I have said, we have forgotten its true meanings due to the misconduct of politicians and instead derive negative meanings from this due to our own actions. 
In any case, Hazrat Muslim uses the word politics for its positive connotations here. It signifies the wisdom, understanding, intelligence, acumen and capabilities required to properly operate a system. Hazrat Muslim further says, Since the Nizam is closely associated with the implementation of Jamaat principles, that is why one of the foremost attributes of the Khulafa is that they uphold and implement the administration. As a Muslim then elaborates on this himself. At the same time, it is necessary that they ensure the establishment of faith and to spread its understanding. The Khalifa is responsible for running the administration of the Jamaat, as well as ensuring the factors that strengthen and establish the faith are implemented. For this reason, where God Almighty has mentioned the institution of Khilafat in the Holy Quran, he has stated the following. That is, God Almighty will surely establish for them their faith and ensure it prevails throughout the world. Thus, the manner in which the faith is presented by the Khulafa is safeguarded by God Almighty. However, this is Hifazat al-Sughra. As a Muslim states, they can err in minor and supplementary matters relating to faith, and Khulafa can disagree with one another. However, they are relating to extremely inconsequential matters. For example, in some matters, Hazrat Abu Bakr held a different opinion to Hazrat Umar and in fact, up to this day, the Muslim Ummah cannot agree upon some of these matters. This disagreement is relating to minor and supplementary matters of faith. There can never be any disagreement regarding the fundamental principles of faith. On the contrary, they, i.e. the Khulafa, will always unanimously agree on such principles as they are the guides and leaders who bestow light to the world. Thus, if one believes that a person who has failed to do the bad can be of the same rank as the one who has not done the bad, then such an individual has not truly understood the significance of the bad and the nizam. In regards to seeking consultation, one must remember that it is possible that one can seek consultation from an expert in their respective field who does not share the same faith as them. The promised Messiah appointed an Englishman as his lawyer during a trial. However, this certainly does not mean that he sought consultation from him in matters regarding to prophethood. On the occasion of the Battle of Khandak, the Holy Prophet ﷺ took advice from Hazrat Salman Farsi and asked what the people of his country did at times of battle. Hazrat Salman Farsi replied that in their country they would dig a trench. The Holy Prophet ﷺ found this to be an excellent advice and thus a trench was dug which is why the battle is famously known as the Battle of the Ditch. However, despite his advice, we cannot say that Hazrat Salman Farsi had greater skill and knowledge than the Holy Prophet ﷺ in the art of battle. There is no comparison to the feats and achievements of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and those of Hazrat Salman Farsi In fact, he was never appointed as the commander-in-chief of any army during any era of the Khulafa, even though he lived a long life. Therefore, 
there is no harm in seeking advice from an expert, even if they belong to a different religion. Speaking about himself, Hazrat Muslim states, Once I was ill and consulted some English doctors. However, this does not mean that I seek advice from them in matters pertaining to Khilafat, or that I consider them to be of the same rank as the companions of the Promised Messiah Indeed, I consult companions However, this certainly does not mean that seeking advice from a non-Muslim is of equal significance as taking advice from the companions. In fact, the companions hold a much loftier rank. As a Muslim further states, Seeking advice from them, i.e. doctors, etc., was only in relation to matters of medicine. He took advice from them in regards to a particular field of study or in regards to a specific matter. Therefore, even if it were proven that Saad bin Obada was consulted in regards to a secular matter in which he held expertise in, however, even then, it cannot be said that he would be part of the consultations. No authentic narration can be found regarding him in which it states that he was involved in consultations. In fact, majority of the narrations state that he migrated from Medina towards the region of Syria. In the view of the companions, he had completely detached himself from the Murkas. Hence, it is mentioned that the companions would state that the angels or the jinn had caused him to die. And from this, it seems that the companions or the Allahu did not describe his demise in a positive sense. Because although every soul is taken by angels, however, for them to specifically mention angels and the jinn in this manner signifies that God Almighty caused his demise owing to a particular divine decree of his, so that he could not become the cause of any division or discord. In other words, he was among the Badri companions after all, and so was caused to die lest he would be guilty of hypocrisy, opposition, or any other such act which would consequently dishonor his status. In any case, he separated himself from the others. As a Muslim further mentions, all of these narrations reveal that the companions no longer held him with the same esteem and honor as they previously did due to the rank that he had once attained. Moreover, it also shows that the companions were not happy with him. Otherwise, why would they say that the angels or the jinn had caused his demise? In fact, upon his demise, they used even stronger words than this, which I shall not repeat. Therefore, to claim that one can maintain their rank and status without performing the bet of the Khalifa and adhering to the Nizam of Islam is completely contrary to the events and the teachings of Islam. Those who entertain such thoughts have in fact completely failed to understand the true concept of bet. As Saad bin Ubadah passed away in Horan in Syria, almost two and a half years after Hazrat Umar had been elected as the Khalifa. According to Allama ibn Hajar Asqalani, he passed away in Busra, a town situated in Syria, and the first town conquered by the Muslims in Syria. There is another narration which states how the people of Medina learnt about his demise. It states that in the intense heat of the afternoon, some of the boys who were jumping into the wells of Bere Munabbi or Bere Sakan heard someone say, وَقَدْ قَتَلْنَا سَيِّدَ الْخَزْرِجِ سَعَدْ بِنْ عُبَادَةِ وَرَمَيْنَاهُ بِسَحْمَيْنِ 
فلم تقد فؤادو We have killed Saad bin Ubadah, chieftain of the Khazraj. We fired two arrows aiming for his heart, which did not fail to reach their target. The boys became frightened and could never forget that day. The people found his body the very same day he passed away. Saad was sat answering the call of nature when he was killed and died straight away. Hazrat Saad bin Ubadah passed away during the Khilafat of Hazrat Umar However, there are varying opinions regarding the exact year of his demise. According to some, he passed away in 14 Hijri, while others state 15 Hijri and 16 Hijri as well. Hazrat Saad's grave is located in a village called Maniha, which is situated in the southern area close to Damascus. This reference is from At-Tabqat al-Kubra. I shall now mention some details about two deceased members and will also lead their funeral prayer in absentia. The first is of respected Sayyid Muhammad Sarwar Shah Sahib, who was a member of the Sadr Anjuman Ahmadiyya Qadian. He passed away on 8th of January at the age of 85. Verily to Allah we belong, and to him shall we return. He was suffering from cancer, but endured this illness with great strength, patience and steadfastness, and right until his demise he continued to fulfill his duties in an excellent manner. He never let his illness become a hindrance in any way. The deceased belonged to a very devout Ahmadi family from Moza Songra, which is situated in the province of Orissa. The deceased's great maternal grandfather, Hazrat Sayyid Abdul Rahim Sahib, was a companion of the Promised Messiah Islam, and his maternal grandfather, respected Mawli Abdul Alim Sahib, was a great scholar and poet. Upon his birth, his father requested his father-in-law to name the child, and he stated that he had seen in a dream that Sayyid Sarwar Shah Sahib had come to their house. Therefore, he should name his son Sayyid Arwar. The deceased acquired his primary education from the district of Katak, and then after acquiring a BA, he worked as a headmaster in a private school. Thereafter, he worked as an assistant in the High Court of Risa, and then worked in the audit office. In 1995, after taking retirement from employment, he dedicated his life to serve the Jamaat. In 1996, Hazrat Khalifat Masih IV, Rahimahullah, entrusted various responsibilities to him and also made him in charge. The deceased also had the opportunity to perform Umrah. Hazrat Khalifat Masih IV, Rahimahullah, also appointed him as the auditor and also a one-man commission. He served as the auditor right until his demise. The deceased also had the opportunity to serve as the president of the Qazar board for nine years. Similarly, he also had the opportunity to serve as the president and as a member for many committees. He also had the opportunity to be a member of Sadr Anjuman Ahmadiyya till his demise. He had great administrative skills, and as I mentioned earlier, he had the opportunity to serve for many years as the central auditor. Hazrat Khalid IV once wrote in a letter to him stating, You are working in an excellent manner. Jazakmullah Ahsan al-Jazah. I admire your expression of devotion without any fear. MashaAllah, you have great observation of very fine and important matters. You should continue to work like this according to your program and no one shall stop you. As a the fourth Rahimahullah then also prayed for his health and long life. The Nazim of Darul Qazar Qadian states, He had a very loving relationship with all the workers of the Qazar department in Qadian. He would try his utmost to quickly resolve the case and issue a decision on the case being dealt by the department. The deceased would very carefully go through the case and would make every effort to ensure the decision was based on justice.
He possessed a very sound opinion in delicate and sensitive matters and would always seek help from Allah Almighty when dealing with such sensitive and delicate cases. His son-in-law, Dr. Tariq Sahib, who is a senior medical officer at the Noor Hospital in Qadian, states, He was very regular in offering his Tajjid prayers. He would always be punctual in offering his prayers and would offer them in the Mubarak Mosque. When his hands and feet became extremely weak, he would take support of others and go to the mosque. He would always go on time for the Friday prayer and sit in the first row. He would remain in the mosque after Maghrib prayer until Isha prayer and would spend the time in offering Nawafil supplication and remembrance of Allah the Almighty. The Nazirullah of Qadian has also written that he possessed many excellent qualities. He was very friendly, very hospitable, extremely hard-working, kind to the poor and very obedient to the office bearers. He had a deep bond with Khilafat and would also urge others to remain firmly attached to Khilafat. By the grace of Allah, he was a Musi. And all his sons and daughters are in the forefront in serving the Jamaat. His youngest son, Sayyid Mahmood Ahmed, is serving in Noor Hospital Qadian as a pharmacist. Both of his sons-in-law, Tanvir Ahmed Sahib, and Dr. Tariq Ahmed Sahib are life devotees and serving in Qadian. Likewise, his youngest son-in-law, Sayyid Hassan Khan, continues to serve the Jamaat as a volunteer even after his retirement. Whilst the late Sahib Zada Mirza Vaseem Ahmed Sahib was serving as Nazir Allah, Sayyid Muhammad Sarva Shah Sahib would work with great dignity in the audit department and would ask him any question in this regard. He would always say, There is no one more loving in the whole of Qadian than Mia Sahib. He lived in Darul Masih, and Hazrat Mia Sahib took great care of him. At times, Shah Sahib would even burst into tears when thinking about the love and affection showed by Mia Sahib. He had great reverence for the Darvesh Qadian. and himself led a very humble and simple life. He also had great affection for Jamia students and would show the utmost respect to the scholars. May Allah the Almighty elevate the rank of the deceased and enable his progeny to follow in his footsteps. The second funeral is of respected Shokat Gohar Sahiba, who was the wife of Dr. Latif Qureshi Sahib of Rabwa and daughter of Molana Abdul Malik Khan Sahib. She passed away in Rabwa on 5th of January at the age of 77. Verily to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. By the grace of Allah, she too was a Musia. She was born in Agra, and in those days, her father, Molana Abdul Malik Khan Sahib, was appointed as a missionary in that area. Thereafter, she moved with her parents to Hyderabad Dakkan. After the partition, she moved to Karachi, where she received her primary education. She showed great aptitude in her studies and would always achieve a notable position. She had a passion for serving the Jamaat from a young age, and she served as a Nasarat secretary there, where she managed to bring the Karachi Nasarat to first position. In 1961, when her nikah was settled with Dr. Latif Qureshi Sahib, at the time, he was studying in the medical college. When her husband moved to the UK, she also went with him. After completing his studies in the UK, 
Dr. Sahib wrote to Hazrat Khalid Tumsi III Rahimahullah, who replied, stating he should return to Pakistan and then appointed him in the Fazli Umar Hospital. She too returned to Rabwa and worked alongside her husband with great enthusiasm. She also had the opportunity to serve the Jamaat extensively and worked for Lajna. During her time, everyone living in Rabwa, the women and I believe even the girls were aware of her services. When my mother, Saib Zadin Nasra Begum Sahiba, served as a Sadr Lajna in Rabwa, she appointed Shokat Sahiba as the General Secretary in her Amila. She continued to offer services in this role for 15 years and it was from her that she received her training. She served with wonderful administrative capabilities and then also served as a secretary in the Merkazi Amila. Thereafter, she was appointed for the General Secretary Merkaziya of Pakistan, where she rendered great services for six years. Due to her ill health, she had to leave her religious responsibilities, but she would continue to give services whenever the opportunity arose, and in whatever capacity possible. She served the Jamaat in different capacities for 50 years, and all the women and girls who worked with her only have words of praise for her. Being kind to neighbours, taking care of the needy, being hospitable, and paying her chanda at the first available moment were some of her distinct qualities. In fact, when the announcement was made this year to donate towards Wakfajadid, she made a donation there and then. This was a few days prior to her demise on 5th January, and the announcement for the new Wakfajadid year was made on 1st of January. Dr. Qureshi Saib writes that in her 50 years they spent together, she was the most exemplary in her conduct as a wife, mother, sister and daughter. One thing Dr. Saib has not written here, or the one writing this has not mentioned, is that she was also an exemplary daughter-in-law. Perhaps he forgot to mention this as she lived with her mother and father-in-law, and in fact her mother-in-law is still alive. And despite her illness, Shokat Saib continued to serve her mother-in-law and take care of her like her own mother. Thus she departed this world after living an exemplary life. She was unwell for a long period of time, but despite that she remained mindful of her responsibilities around the home and would complete all of them. Even in sickness she would never complain and would bear the illness with great patience. She had a deep bond with Khilafat. Among those she leaves behind are her husband, Dr. Latif Krashi Saib, three sons and two daughters. Two of her sons and one daughter is a doctor and one son is an engineer. All of her children are well educated. She taught them in very difficult circumstances. One of her daughters once asked her why she never wore jewellery or had fine clothes made for herself, to which she replied that whatever money she saved would go towards their education. She also said that the only type of jewellery and nice clothes she desired was for her children to attain an education become valuable individuals for the Jamaat and to be able to take care of themselves. She often saw true dreams and visions. Her children have written that many of her dreams came true. At the time of her daughter's entry to college, 
Shokat Saiba informed her daughter that she would be accepted by such and such medical college as she had seen it in her dream, which was then fulfilled as stated. There are many other similar dreams. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, she is a very pious woman and took care of her sisters as well as other people. Her son Abdul Malik has written that she was selfless in her services to the community. She would walk in the extreme heat from the Lujna office to Darul Uloom, but not once did she complain. On the day of Eid, she would always make a sweet dish at home and send it to her neighbours, whether they were immediate neighbours or lived at a distance. She would always say that if we remain attached to our religion, then God Almighty will never abandon us. One daughter who lives in the US writes, After marriage and when I had children, she would advise me that in order to keep them away from the bad influences and environment of the US and other countries, I ought to have a loving and friendly relationship with my children. Also that I ought to make the environment of the home such that they remain content at home and for them to spend more time at home rather than outside of the house. The same daughter then says, Once in medical college, other girls began to oppose me and boycotted me as I was an Ahmadi Muslim. I called my mother and began to cry on the phone. However, she gave me wonderful advice stating that there is no reason to cry as this was the case with all the prophets and that I had the opportunity to follow in their practice. She also said to note her advice that if I ever suffered pain in the way of Ahmadiyyad, then God Almighty would never let me go to waste and that I shall always be successful in my examinations. She then states, I not only passed my exams, but each one of the mischievous girls failed theirs. May Allah the Almighty elevate the rank of the deceased and enable her children to follow in her footsteps. May they be pious, righteous servants to their faith and may they always have a firm and loyal bond with Khilafat. As I mentioned, after the prayers I shall lead the funeral prayers in absentia of the two deceased.